feel a hateful rage against you? Why can't this amazing man of God come skipping down the road laughing as he watches his grandchildren grow? After years of ministry, service, and sacrifice, why can't he enjoy a graceful return? Why did this cancer campaign come when my parents lived so far away from us? Why did we have to have cancer that is incurable? Why did it have to take two? Why did it have to break all the bones in his body and leave him so much pain? I wonder all these things, the questions of deference. The roller coaster of ups and downs is like torture. Dad would have a good week, a great day, and the sun would come out. I could get sick. I'd make plans, and my expectations go up. We declare healing, and my soul searches for hope. Then we are smacked down with new side effects, new torture, and it all comes real soon. I feel like I'm back to the day my parents called me to come with the diagnosis. My worst fears come up. I huddle in a corner, rocked from grief and fear, again, and around and around we go. But I don't want to get off this ride, because when I do, I know that will be and my soul Okay. Okay. Sounds like I'm wired. Hello, friends. Good morning to everybody. It is such a, an honor to be here. This church uh, is always very special for me whenever I'm here. Uh, I come to love all, all the students, you know, that uh, sit under my ministry uh, at Elam. And there's so many former students uh, here, including your, uh, uh, your pastor and, uh, you know, most of the worship team. And it's just a, uh, it's just a great blessing, a uh, great blessing to be here and to see all of you. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to continue that theme. I gave you a little handout that uh, you can kind of follow along. There's a couple fill-in-the-blanks. Uh, but most of it's already filled in uh, for you. And it's called Loving God 
when he doesn't make sense, Psalm 73. Actually, when Pastor Chris called me, he said uh, back when I was teaching uh, the book of Psalms, when he was a student, that I had given a message on Psalm 73. And he said, uh, uh, it was such a great message, I wonder if you could come and give that message. Well, I was kind of shocked that that many years ago that I even had anything to say. That was the first uh, shock. But uh, it was in the days before computers, and I had a few few things in my file, uh, but nothing on Psalm 73. So if there's anything that uh, actually was in that message that comes out this morning, it's, it's purely by accident. Uh, but I've lived, uh, lived with this psalm uh, since the day that I talked with Pastor Chris and uh, feel like uh, you know, I'm, I'm able to really share some things that are significant. We're going to share some thoughts then this morning from Psalm 73. And this psalm was written by an important man of God in the Old Testament named Asaph. It's not a psalm of David. And Asaph, uh, during the reign of King David, uh, was the most significant worship leader in the whole nation. We read about the impact of his ministry in 1 Chronicles 16, where it says he appointed, that is David, some of the Levites, to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And Asaph was the chief. In addition to being a worship superstar, uh, or Mr. Hillsong, if it was 2018, he's also the author of inspired poetry. Including this psalm, he is responsible for writing 12 of the psalms in our Bible. And if that resume isn't impressive enough, he's also identified as a prophet in 2 Chronicles 29. You say, why uh, are we even talking about that kind of background? Well, I think it's important because we need to recognize up front that the words that we're going to see in Psalm 73 were not penned by some spiritual novice who didn't understand the ways of God. Instead, we are confronted with the thoughts of an anointed worship leader who has laser prophetic insight. So this morning, we're going to divide the psalm into two parts. There's actually three parts, but because of time, we're only going to look at two this morning. And the first one is there, has a little fill-in on your notes, and it's called Asaph's Struggle, The Struggle. Part one is the struggle. Let's begin examining his struggle, looking at what we see in verse one. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Passion Translation says, no one can deny it. God is really good to Israel. The psalmist's declaration is so strong and it rings clear. God is surely good to his people. 
Some translations, I think it's the Amplified Bible, even adds the phrase that God is only good to his people. Psalm 73 is basically saying to us in verse 1 that the only thing that God is capable of being with his people is good. And of course, goodness means that good things will happen in our lives. Goodness also implies that Jesus is constantly watching over his people with love and protective care. And yet, amazingly, after the psalmist makes this all-encompassing statement about how good God is, he tells us that his feet came close to stumbling. Now, I have to ask the question, why would you stumble over the loving, good care of God in your life? How many people have you ever met that said, you know, if, if God just gives me one more blessing, I'm going to backslide and walk away from him? But he says, God is so good to his people. He's only good to his people. But my feet came close to stumbling. Well, the answer to that question is what we're going to be wrestling with this morning. I gave a little quote in your notes there from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he makes the statement that says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But his creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power, or both. My recent personal testimony with this type of struggle that Asaph is describing begins on a very beautiful fall morning in October of 2010. My wife and I were facilitating a marriage seminar at a large African-American church in suburban Rochester. We had conducted a uh, seminar at that church two years earlier, and the pastor had invited us back to do a part two. And so I sat at a table on this beautiful October morning and was looking at my beautiful, brilliant wife standing at the podium sharing her teaching on marriage. When Connie, my wife, had spoken in recent years at our seminars, and I even got to the place where I would bring her into the, uh, the class uh, that I taught marriage and family at Elam. Uh, probably uh, a number of the students here would have sat under her ministry at least once or twice in that area. She always brought the house down with her teaching. But on this particular morning, I realized shortly after she began to speak that she was lost. She fumbled in her communication. She was unable to bring her thoughts into focus. She was unable even to read her notes. She was never able to recover, and her teaching session ended in disaster. That distressing experience, along with several other th incidents that happened concurrently, led us to doctors, neurologists, specialists. And several months later, my sweetheart, was diagnosed with the early onset of Alzheimer's disease. Because we believed in miracles and the Word of God, we immediately called for our leaders to anoint Connie with oil 
and pray for her physical healing. On the Sunday morning that we prayed, the prayer room was filled with elders, spiritual leaders, pastors, leaders from the Elm Fellowship. The word had gotten out that after the service, we were going to pray for Connie Klein. And that back prayer room at Elam Gospel Church was just crammed, you know, with the leaders uh, that, that carried an incredible anointing, every single one of them. And the promise of James chapter 5 is very clear. James says in John 5, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. The promise of God can't be any clearer than that. Plus, we know that God is only good to his people. The miracle healing of James 5, however, never came to my sweetheart. What came instead was the experience of watching the love of my life die by inches for seven long years. In the awful process of her daily loss, everything was taken from her, leaving her in the final stages of the disease, broken in a wheelchair and virtually unable to speak. Along with many others, I continued to pray. I fought with everything that I had to keep her in the home with me and care for her right up until the very end. And so we would sleep in the same bed, and every single night I would lay my hands on my girl, and I would ask the Lord to heal her, to bring her out of this uh, grave that she was gradually moving into. And then out of the blue, I found myself diagnosed with stage four cancer that began to flood into my body. At that point, I even bargained with God. I offered my life in exchange for Connie, asking the Lord on several occasions, I said, would you take me and provide her with a Lazarus miracle? But of course, you can't strike that kind of bargain with God. And in the summer of 2017, he received the love of my life into his eternal presence. Some have suggested that Connie was supernaturally healed when she died in 2017. Now, if that type of thinking gets you through the night, then God bless you. But being whole in the eternal kingdom is not what James 5 is talking about. He is speaking about healing in this present life. And for my beloved wife, that healing never came. And yet the psalmist declares that God is only good to Israel. And so we're forced to reconcile his goodness with the pain that we experience, with the suffering and the confusion and the loss that pierces all of our lives, the loss of a marriage through divorce, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, struggling with a debilitating physical illness, the agony of a loved one's suicide, the desperate prayer that we have for a, a wayward child who isn't responding to the prayers that are ascending to the Father. All of these thrust the sharp blade of grief into our very soul, into our heart. And then we hear the declaration of the psalmist that God is only good 
to his people. Of course, the danger is not that we stop believing in God. C.S. Lewis, again, captures this perfectly in another book he wrote called A Grief Observed. He says that the danger is not that we cease to believe in God, but that we come instead to the conviction that this is what God is really like after all. A secular French author says it this way, from an unbelieving perspective. I don't know if God exists, but it would be better for his reputation if he didn't. And these issues become more complicated when we hear what Asaph has to say in verses 3 to 5. I have them there in your notes. He says, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. So the psalmist raises two questions that perplex the believer in the 21st century. As we look at the entire psalm, he's struggling, first of all, with why do bad things happen to good people? But then he takes this one step further into his pain with the added question of why are good things happening for bad people? Where is justice? Where is fairness? Why do corrupt, immoral, unethical people get away with their crimes? When are liars, cheaters, and murderers going to be brought to justice? I'm convinced that the reason our culture is so obsessed with superheroes is because they have the power to defeat villains who have no regard for human life. They don't call them the Avengers for nothing. And Captain America and Iron Man and Superman and the whole plethora of heroes that are there seem to be doing in the movies what we wish God would do in real life. The tension becomes so great for the psalmist that he finally blurts out his frustration and his anguish in verse 13 with the following words. I think I've included it in your note-taking guide. Did I keep my heart pure? For nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long, and every morning brings me pain. Asaph is ready to give up in discouragement and despair, but at the lowest point, he discovers a path that begins to lead him away from confusion and into clarity. In your note-taking guide, we list the second truth that we find in this psalm. It begins to highlight a solution. And the second part is the surrender. So we've been looking at Asaph's struggle, and now we look at Asaph's surrender. Notice verses 16 and 17. I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and finally I understood. The Passion Translation says, And in the light of glory, my distorted perspective vanished. 
In the light of glory, my distorted perspective vanished. There's an American educational animated TV series that I have watched with my grandchildren in the past. Wasn't around when my girls were little, but uh, I've watched it a lot with my grandchildren. The name of the show is called Dora the Explorer. Anybody seen Dora? It's so popular that they're actually currently underway at Paramount Players doing a full-length film that's uh, supposed to be released in August of 2019. But anyway, the TV series centers around Dora, this adorable little seven-year-old Latina girl with a love of going on quests. And she's always accompanied by her talking purple backpack and a little monkey named Boots that is named because of his beloved pair of red boots that he always wears. And at times when Andorra is on one of her quests, she gets lost. And when that happens, she speaks to her talking purple backpack and simply says the word, map. And then she turns to the TV audience and she commands them to say the word louder. And so I would find myself sitting with my grandchildren, shouting map at the TV screen. <laughs> and after everyone says the word loud enough, the backpack produces the required map, which empowers Dora and Boots to successfully complete their journey. And then the episode every always ends with Dora and Boots triumphantly singing the We Did It song. In this children's story, Dora's quest resembles what's happening in Psalm 73. Asaph and his intense struggle has become spiritually lost. Nothing is adding up on his spiritual calculator. And he's ready to walk away from the faith in his pain and desperation. But when all seems lost, the leader enters into the sanctuary and he finds a map. And this map confronts him with three realities that I have in your notes there that must become a part of every believer's life if we hope to navigate our way through the kind of struggles that we all face. Reality one, he is confronted with God's perspective. The first part of the map is a confrontation with God's perspective. God's perspective, of course, must be understood through our own limitations with this thing called time. Time inserts and exerts a powerful influence over all of our lives. We speak of tyranny of the urgent. We all feel the demand of full schedules that have to be crammed uh, to somehow accommodate the limitations of 24-hour days. There is nothing that is more unforgiving than time. And yet God's perspective is not limited by time. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13. This means that time itself is finite. And it's created. And that Jesus always lives in his eternal now. Peter tried to put it in terms that us dummies can understand when he stated that a day is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. 
So a serious tension is created when I try to sync God's timetable with my timetable. If God's going to deal with the wicked, I want it done yesterday, or at least by tomorrow. From his eternal perspective, the timetable might look very different. Same is true with the goodness of God. If I'm struggling, I want the blessing of God to be released in my life today. I don't want it 10 years from now. I don't want it after death in the eternal kingdom. I want it here now. Yet God's perspective forces me to rephrase the very question about what his goodness means in my life. Maybe my spiritual vision is so limited that I'm unable to see that the very struggle is a demonstration of his goodness to me because it's forming the image of Christ in me. I have had to embrace the hard truth that God is more concerned about my holiness than he is my happiness. The eternal perspective that Asaph receives when he enters into the sanctuary, and that is why he is able to declare in verse 17 that he finally understood. The second part of the map, reality two, is God's power. Second reality that is revealed in the sanctuary is the power of God. Again, notice his words. I realized that my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was foolish. I was ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. What powerful imagery. The struggle has been so intense that Asaph has become bitter. Have you ever been in that emotional place where you were struggling with bitterness and you felt all torn up on the inside? The psalmist even adds the imagery of being reduced to a senseless, trapped animal. I understand what Asaph is describing. When Connie and I tragically lost our oldest daughter and and our firstborn granddaughter in 1996. I had to get honest about the anger in my heart. After my daughter's funeral, I remember one time of prayer when I, I sat in my living room and said, Lord, I am angry at you for allowing this. Her death should never have happened. I basically snarled at God as I shook an angry fist at heaven. I discovered in amazement, however, that not only is God big enough to handle my anger, but it came as no surprise to him anyway. And Asaph discovered that truth, that if you nurture the anger, it begins to take root. It becomes destructive, and it produces bitterness in our heart. But if we openly acknowledge it before the Lord, the person of the Holy Spirit is released to help us as we embrace the reality of whatever the loss is. Notice again the words of the psalm. Because we belong to him, he holds us by the right hand. This is the picture of a father who's watching over his children. When I walked with my girls when they were little, I would hold their hands as we crossed the street. 
I didn't hold the hand of every child that I saw in public, but I held their hand because they were mine and they belonged to me. And God takes our hand in that same way and he guides us with his counsel. If we keep our spiritual ears open, he will speak to us in our struggles. But then comes the most incredible part of the revelation. Not only does he hold our hand and guide us with his counsel, he leads us into a glorious destiny. The NIV says, my portion forever. God has a destiny for our lives, even in the grip of great struggle and suffering. And if our hearts are open, his power will lead us into the fullness of his plan for this life and beyond this life. The third reality of the map is Asaph is confronted with God's presence. God's presence, I love these verses in 25 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My heart may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. The spiritual reality of our life is stripped down to the bare bones in these verses. Listen to the intensity of the psalmist. As he speaks out, I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. As Asaph begins to wind up his psalm, he basically is saying that there is nothing more important than our love relationship with Jesus. We can best understand and illustrate this principle by considering the covenant of marriage. In our modern ceremonies, this is just my own soapbox, I believe we have lost the true meaning of covenant that was so clearly articulated in the traditional vows that actually come out of the Book of Common Prayer. The deepest meaning of the covenant is conveyed in the meaning of the old English word wedded. We have simplified the meaning currently to simply describe the act of getting married. So-and-so is wedded. They're married. But the meaning in the 16th century was very different. The word wedded carried the root meaning of being obstinately attached or devoted to another. What a powerful word, obstinate. Obstinate describes a person who is unreasonably determined and they refuse to be subdued to whatever point they're looking to hang on to. How is this obstinate attachment and devotion demonstrated in the marriage relationship? Again, the traditional vows say it very clearly. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till doth us do part. 
Marriages are filled with all kinds of ups and downs. Sometimes the circumstances of life seem so wonderful and positive that we have to pinch ourselves to make sure we're not dreaming. At other times, problems come crashing in with a force that seems to buckle our knees. There's one reality that never changes, and that's the promises that we made in covenant at the altar. I made a promise to my wife in 1968 that I would always be there for her. We were blessed with an incredible relationship. After we celebrated our 30th anniversary, I remember saying to her, I feel like I'm still on my honeymoon with you. In those years of blessing, I was glued to her side. But when our lives were shattered and falling apart during her debilitating illness, I was still there to hold her and to serve her. It was an honor to care for my girl. But my perseverance and covenant was not sustained by the circumstances. And it wasn't sustained because it felt so good. In 2013, if I have to be completely frank with you, I had to put the girl of my dreams into diapers. It didn't, didn't feel good to do that. But I was obstinately attached and devoted to her in love because of the promises we had made at the altar. There were certain things that would happen that were quite incredible during that time, especially the last months. Because of what I had to face with my own cancer, she spent the last 14 months of her life at a facility in Pittsburgh called the Highlands, a wonderful home that really provided for her and cared for her. I would go in often every day if I could. I would, uh, she had gotten to the place where she didn't really recognize anybody. Sometimes uh, when uh, one of our, my daughters would come in with me, uh, she, sometimes she would recognize them, sometimes not. But uh, she always lit up like a Christmas tree when she saw me. And I would wheel her into the dining room. And I would feed her. It would take about an hour and 15 minutes because it was difficult for her to swallow. And after I fed her, I would uh, just pick some story from our past. Might have been a time of vacation. Might have been, feel something had happened with our girls. It could have been anything. I just reached back into the past and I pulled something into the present. And I would say, hey, remember when this happened? And I would just begin to talk to her. I would tell her the story. I would hold her hand. And she would sit there and she would nod. And I would uh, basically be her memory for her at that point. And every minute or so, I would stop every five minutes maybe. And I would say, hey, you know what? And it was difficult for her to speak, but she would say what? And I would say, I love you so much. And she would look back and she would say, I love you too, sweetheart. And then she would lean forward and she would put her forehead against mine. That's nothing that we ever did in our marriages. You know, we, we had all kinds of little intimacies that we shared, but we never touched foreheads. But somehow we're in illness. There was a significance in that. And maybe for 30 or 40 seconds, she would hold the forehead against mine. 
And then she would lean back in the wheelchair, and I continue with the story. Again, obstinate attachment and devotion because of promises that were made. And this brings us back to our relationship with Jesus. There are times when our spiritual lives are in a wonderful place of victory. There are other times that we find ourselves in distress and pain, the pain of a Psalm 73 experience. And it brings us full circle back to the original question. How do we continue to love God when he doesn't make sense? The answer very simply is found in the surrender of our hearts. It involves asking the Lord to create in the core of my being an obstinate attachment and devotion to his person. No matter what happens, I will cling to him, refusing to be turned away from my love relationship with him. The declaration of verse 26 is the key. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And in an attitude of surrender, we can apply that verse to different life circumstances that many people face. We can say it this way. Even though my spouse said, till death do us part, and didn't live up to their promise, God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Even though I prayed for someone's healing and they died, God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Even though I raised my children to honor God and His Word, and they're making some poor choices right now, God is the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Even though my finances are limited and I just found out that I need front and back breaks. God is the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Even though I don't like it or want it. Even though I know he could and he should, but he's not. God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And I want to be clear. I have not been chanting some kind of Hindu or Buddhist mantra. We are speaking about the confession and the surrender of trust to the ultimate love relationship. And I have become absolutely convinced in my life, as I am just short of 70 years of age, I've become absolutely convinced of one thing. I would rather be with the Lord in the midst of of shattering pain than experience a trouble-free life without him. We're speaking about obstinate love and attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to that kind of surrender that I call us this morning. Pastor Chris is now going to come and set up the time of ministry that you normally have in your church.